This is HPR episode 2385 entitled 20,170,620 into action part 7. It is hosted by Ayuka and is about 13 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is, what are the cost pressures in healthcare? This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. This is Ahuka, welcoming you to Hacker Public Radio and another exciting episode in our little mini-series on healthcare policy in the United States, um, which I'm doing for a number of reasons, but one of them is there's a lot of it in the news right now. So um, now what we want to talk about today is healthcare costs, uh, which is a key part of this whole thing. I mean, one of the the things that motivated... uh, the government to attempt uh, the Obamacare reforms was that healthcare costs were just rising unsustainably. Um, and so something had to be done. Now, I don't think that's a problem unique to the United States uh, because everything I've seen says that the factors that uh, were driving costs in the United States are to some degree operative in any other country. They're just a, a question of fundamentally how the economics of healthcare works. Um, every country faces increase in healthcare costs. The differences are in degree and in how each country responds to those cost pressures. Now, the first place to look for cost pressures is what is known in economics as Baumel and Bowen's cost disease, although Frequently, Bowen gets dropped out, and they just call it Baumol's cost disease. He's the more famous of the two. Um, And I got a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page. You can get more detail on this. But this insight um, comes from understanding uh, why some costs tend to fall over time and others don't, and why is that? So let's take something that I think a lot of people in Hacker Public Radio are familiar with. Moore's Law in the computer industry. Right? Continual decreases in the price of semiconductors even as performance increases. Well, this is marvelous, but what is the underlying cause? All right? If we look into it, almost all of the decreases in prices of products over time are due to the increasing application of capital. Okay, increased automation. Um, you know, in the case of semiconductors, you know, take a look at it. It costs billions of dollars to build a semiconductor foundry. Right? It's not something you can do in a garage here. Right? Now, if we take a look generally through manufacturing, uh, 
Factories that once employed thousands of workers now employ hundreds and can, as a result, reduce prices while increasing employee pay. Now, the employee pay part is is true in theory. However, in the United States, uh, pay increases were decoupled from productivity increases in the 1980s and have remained uncoupled. That's a topic for another day. Uh, we take a look at another sector, uh, agriculture. All right, agriculture used to employ virtually, uh, you know, 80, 90 percent of people in the United States were involved in agriculture. And if we go back in time, similar things in other countries. And then agricultural productivity increased. Well, how did it increase? Again, fer- artificial fertilizers produced in factories, uh, Tractors, uh, in other words, there's a, a lot of capital went into it to the point that now in the United States, it's about 2% of our population is engaged in agriculture. And that 2% not only feeds everyone in the United States, but produces a surplus for export. But we do it in a highly capital-intensive way. So we, we're just not using that much labor to do agriculture anymore. So... And that's fine in industries like agriculture and manufacturing, where automation is comparatively easy to implement. Uh, But Baumel and Bowen noted that the service sector is not that type of industry, generally. Services tend to be people-to-people interactions. When you go to a concert, you want to hear real-life musicians. If you're going to college, you want contact with a real live professor. And when you want health care, you want to deal with a real live doctor. Her notions of quality all depend on this. But these are all cases where automation is either not feasible or would notably reduce quality. Now, everyone working in the service sector has to earn money for doing so. And even though they are in a sector that does not raise productivity very much, they're looking at a wage scale determined by the overall labor market. So, for instance, if you work in a good job and your pay increases due to productivity improvements, you will shortly find that your children's teacher is also looking for a pay increase. But teachers find it difficult to actually improve productivity, One way they could, in theory, increase productivity is by increasing the size of the class, but that would be seen, and rightly so, as a decrease in quality. And in healthcare, this productivity puzzle is equally difficult to reconcile. We sometimes talk about how good our doctor is or isn't by discussing something we call their bedside manner which is simply a way to say we value the person-to-person interaction that cannot be automated. Indeed, that is one of the few metrics most consumers have available to them to evaluate quality in this sector. Chances are we don't ask the doctor, where did you go to medical school? What were your grades like? How well do you keep up on the latest trends? And would an average consumer even know how to evaluate the answers to those questions? You know, there's a, a joke. I, I used to work in the healthcare industry for a while. 
And the joke is, what do you call the person who graduates at the bottom of their class from medical school? The answer is doctor. Now, just today, as, as I'm writing this, I saw, and I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes for you, an article on CNET with the headline, Cancer-Fighting Robots Still Need the Human Touch. Robots can improve breast cancer diagnoses, but shouldn't diminish the patient experience. The point being, robot can do the job as well as a human, but it affects your experience as a patient. To have the robot do it would diminish the patient experience. What about quality improvements? I think this is another factor you have to keep in mind. There can be quality improvements that have an impact on costs. As we discussed in a previous episode, we don't do exploratory surgery anymore. And that's all to the good. But that quality improvement came from increasing capital investment in very expensive imaging technologies like CAT scans, PET scans, and MRIs. This is a particular case of the more general problem economists deal with in trying to create price indexes to measure inflation. Price is not the only thing that changes over time. The technology employed also changes. So a straightforward comparison of prices in two different times is very tricky. A late model automobile costs more than one purchase 20 or 30 years ago, but also incorporates a lot of safety features that were not even available back then. And healthcare also brings in quality improvements due to changes in our scientific understanding of medical and health problems. We are using new technologies, such as CRISPR, which is a gene editing technology, to address diseases, which may let us cure or ameliorate diseases uh, against which we were previously helpless, but this can add costs to the equation as well. Just in the last generation, we have seen organ transplants save many lives, but that has a cost. Now we're looking at being able to 3D print and grow organs from our own stem cells, which would be even better, but that costs money too. So there are several market forces driving costs up. The first is the entirely natural and rational move on the part of companies to find profitable niches. For instance, drug companies have largely abandoned the search for new antibiotics because there's not enough profit there. Instead, they look for market niches where they can charge a high price and for a drug that people will take daily for many years. In a profit-oriented market economy, you should not be surprised at this. Examples of this include cholesterol-reducing drugs, impotence drugs, and so on. There is a ready market of people who will pay for these medications, and in many cases it will be covered by health insurance. Of course, that drives up insurance problems, but insurance premiums, I mean, but that's not a problem drug companies are interested in. Hospitals look to improve their appeal to patients by purchasing all of the latest technology, and that means their costs rise. Once you have an MRI machine, you start tending to use MRIs more. That's kind of the way it works. Doctors tend to specialize in niches where they can earn more, leading to a situation where we have plenty of cardiologists but a shortage of primary physicians. 
Another market force is consolidation. If we look at the landscape of the healthcare market, we see hospital chains growing through mergers and buyouts. Larger hospital chains gain market power to negotiate better reimbursements from health insurance companies. And on the lower level, if I can put it that way, there are fewer individual practices by doctors. Instead, they are consolidating into larger groups, and often those groups are merged into or allied with hospital groups. At the same time, health insurers are merging and consolidating to improve their market power. Market power matters in all of these cases because different layers are competing to get a larger share of the healthcare money available. But in the course of their competition, prices inexorably rise. Now, I'll put a link in the show notes that uh, gives some data on healthcare expenditure per capita by country. And what is clear is that spending in the U.S. is higher and is rising more rapidly than in other countries. One final note. Some years back, uh, not that many, but uh, I was working in the finance department of a major university hospital back when Obamacare was being discussed. And that caused a, a certain amount of unease among many of my coworkers simply because it represented change. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen? What is this going to mean for us? You know, we're working in the healthcare industry. Is this good? Is it bad? Uh, you know, nobody knows. And there's all sorts of stuff going on. And I remember the chief financial officer of the hospital said, remember, the present system is unsustainable. So it will have to change. And that is, of course, what happened with Obamacare. And so we want to take a look at that next. So, this is Ahuka saying thank you for Hacker Public Radio and reminding you as always to support free software. Bye bye. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.